The Burning Bird presents The Phoenix Files, featuring Steve Leinert. But, uh, you know what? I'm shoot or shoot. Alexander Shaggy Shragus. And that Nardy was wild. And then it ends. Nard gets uh, the gold. And Harvish Huck Meta. Oh my god. Again. This is what the Phoenix do. You know, they give me hope. They give me hope. Welcome, Phoenix fans, to another episode of The Burning Bird presents The Phoenix Files Game of the Week. This week, go back and recap the double overtime season-ending victory over the Montreal Royale on July 14, 2019. I'm joined by my regular partners in crime, Alexander Shaggy Shragus. Shag, how you doing today, buddy? Great. Just got back from an excellent uh, round of Frisbee golf, so I'm firing all cylinders. Did you play by yourself? No, it was myself, general manager Mike Arcata, and my good buddy, Phil Case. Oh, I hope you guys practice social distancing. Yeah, we didn't get anywhere close to each other. It was perfect. <laughs> and we're also joined on the Phoenix Files here by Harvish Huck Meta. Harvish, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks. How you doing? Oh, man, couldn't be better. Another day in paradise there, Harvish. So we're going we're gonna to be recapping the, the Phoenix who ended the season on a hot note. They went on the road up to Montreal to play the Royale, and the Phoenix came out in the first quarter. Mott hit Austin Lillis upwind to get a break to start, and the Phoenix went up one to nothing. After trading a couple points, the Phoenix and the Royale found themselves tied at three, but an upwind goal by Greg Martin and another break from Mott to Lillis. At the end of the first quarter, the Phoenix held a six to four lead. Mott had three assists, Greg Martin had two goals, but Philadelphia had two breaks. A Mike Arcata greatest leads to a Mott to Himalaya meta goal to give the Phoenix a 7-4 lead to start the second quarter as the wins picked up in Montreal. The Royale scored the next two goals to pull within 7-6. That was before Greg Martin hit Himalaya meta to make it 8-6 Phoenix, who ended up holding an 8-7 lead at halftime. The Phoenix, after suffering multiple turnovers to start the third quarter, the Phoenix jumped out to a 9-8 lead after Damiano hit Himalaya Meta for another goal with 6.48 remaining in the third quarter. With the game tied at 10, the Phoenix went on a three-goal run to push their lead back to 13-10 before the Royale were able to close within 14-13 to close the third quarter. Philly, trying to keep Montreal at bay, opened the fourth quarter with a goal to give themselves a 15-13 lead, but that lead evaporated as eventually an Arcata turnover led to a Montreal goal to give them a 17-16 lead. Fourth quarter, an upwind hold and then a break gave the Royale a late 19-18 lead with just 34.7 seconds remaining. The Phoenix held the disc to the very last second and got a clean hold. Damiano hit Connor Boyle as the buzzer sounded in the fourth quarter to tie the game at 19 to force overtime. The Phoenix won the toss and elected to pull to Montreal. Montreal, after trading turnovers, completed the upwind climb, and the Montreal Royale held a 20 to 19 lead, but that would be the last goal the Royale would score. With 117 left in overtime, Mott had another assist to pull the Phoenix back even. The first overtime period ended. And we went to sudden death. In sudden death, a Greg Martin Huck found Mike Arcata diving into the end zone to give the Phoenix a 21-20 victory in Montreal. So Harvish, hearkening back to the beginning of the game, getting that all-important first goal and first break seemed to get the Phoenix off on the right foot. You know what? That that was an extremely important play. I think I think Moss just showing off here. I mean, what he just scoobering randomly blindsided on the field. There's a cross field scoobers and over people's heads. I, it's ridiculous. It's amazing. He's just a catalyst. We need him in the beginning of game. Shaggy, what do you think? I just, I loved watching Mott play defense. And I also loved watching him like be the general on the line for those defensive lines. Like when he's on the D line, he's a handler and he looks so natural in that position. He's like doing those little points, pointing people here, pointing people there, scoobering over the top, making those little like, 45-degree angle cuts to get open in very little space. I thought it was beautiful. Also, uh, I really liked in the first quarter when they call us the troublemakers of the East. That made me feel really good. <laughs> <laughs> I like when they say it in a French accent, 
Trouble makers. I love I love that. It's just Trouble makers. <laughs> well, the uh, Mott had three assists and Greg Martin had two goals and Philadelphia had two breaks in that first quarter. How about Arcada's greatest in the the start of the second quarter there, Shag? What did you what did you think of that? I mean, it was his toe on the on the line. I don't know. I think his toe was on the line. I mean, maybe. It's hard to tell. I, I like I thought that, especially compared to our last game, the refs were in such control over this game. Like, even uh-huh. if his toe was on the line, we have no idea because they didn't spend any time talking about it. So maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't. I have no idea. It, was a, sick, him, it was a sick play. Just giving him a hard time. Yeah, no, it was a sick play that turned into a foul on Greg Moeller and uh, the, the Phoenix. The, the, it led to a completed greatest uh, by Mike Arcata. Um, that also led to another Himalaya meta goal. Your brother was on fire in this game, there, Harvish. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, I, I know. I know. In the podcast, we talked about, especially in the first Montreal game that we're looking at. We're looking at like the secret weapon we had against Montreal. They can never stop Himalaya, you know, scoring, and he's always had a huge impact in those games. And then the first Montreal game we had, we were just blown out, twenty-five fifteen, Montreal. And uh, it's good to see that he's back to his old self in this game and just scoring goals, just being open when he needs to be open, making easy cuts, uh, easy in cuts and catching a disc and swinging the disc. Uh, what I noticed more in this game is he was just he was just a cutter. You know, he just went in, caught the disc, then dumped it to a handler and sped off doing what he whatever he wanted to do, you know. But he was also a cutter who scored. So that was good. <laughs> so I like seeing that. On, on this point is one of my favorite plays of the game. So Arcata turns it on a crazy hammer. Arcata was throwing like we'd only won three games on the season, and this was our last game. We were already eliminated from playoff contention. But there's a big hook to go dare. I think Quin- Quinlan has some of the cra- – Montreal throws the craziest throws I've ever seen. I've never – it's like watching a different sport, the way Montreal played this game uh, from the throwing standpoint. Go- there's this big hook to o- go dare, and Mott tries to go over the top of him, and he can't do it. Go dare's too big. So he doesn't get the disc, and then he speeds off, and Godard catches the disc, lands, and immediately throws it to the end zone. And somehow Mott, after trying to go over his back, and he doesn't do it, books it for the end zone and gets a layout D. Like, it was one of the most amazing hustle plays I've ever seen, where he, he had no business being in that play after he gets bodied for the hunt. All right, well, the Phoenix end the first half with in a uh, rather inauspicious uh, fashion. They turned the disc over, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, six times on the last point of the first half. How long do you think that point was, that last point of the first half? Uh, six minutes yes. and 28 seconds. Six you minutes wrote it down. Seconds. I wrote it down. It was down. so long. It was so <laughs> long. I was, I was going through it. I was, like, writing things down. I was like, I feel like I haven't updated the score in a while. It took forever. <laughs> It was a 15-minute point of just screen time. It was wild. What makes it what makes it worse is that there was no score at the end. It was just there was no like closure to the point. It was just all right. That's the half. I guess no one scored in that six minutes and 30 seconds. No one, no one, no one scored. And but there were three timeouts taken during the point. Oh, uh, another great part about this point. This is the only point in the game that it happens. But uh, Austin Willis gets a great D. But the announcers don't know Austin Willis, but they do know Dustin Damiano because Dustin Damiano's been on the team forever. And they're both blonde. So they're like, Damiano with the stupendous D. And I just remember last week when we were making fun of you, Steve, for confusing them because of their hair. But now everyone's doing it. <laughs> I don't know how I can blame you. It's, it's very hard. It's very hard to distinguish them when you're like a certain distance away for sure. And uh, I, I was able to, because you said that last week, I was able to forgive the Montreal <laughs> I was I I had a little aha. It's not just me. It's, uh, the Phoenix turnover woes continued to start at their quarters. They turned the disc over uh, at least four more times, so that would be ten straight offensive possessions. The Phoenix had the disc bridging the second and third quarters where they turned the disc over, but somehow somehow they found themselves only tied at eight after all of that. Damiano hit Meta to make it a 9-8 uh, advantage, and the Phoenix were off and running again. You know, they got their offense back on track. But I think that three-goal swing from when it was 10-10 to where the Phoenix went up 13-10, I think that was a pivotal part of this particular quarter. I loved that point out of half. 
I know that we didn't score and there were a lot of turnovers, but Dylan Smith and Alan Michelle both wear the same number and they combine for three Ds in that point and the announcers can't tell them who they are because they're both wearing the same number, which is fair. They don't look anything alike, but they're both kind of short. They get three Ds on that point. James Pollard lays out and drops it, but he lays out. You know, we just talked to him, uh, Steve, about how we want Pollard to bid, and he bids in this point. It's like the only bid I've ever seen from him. I really like that. And these, these like, those three points, that run that we go on, leading up to it, right, the points to make it 10-10 take, like, seven minutes. It's three points. It takes, like, seven minutes. And then us scoring those three points are so fast. Bing, bang, boom. That's when our offense is rolling. Even if it's not first row, even if it's just, like, constant motion. That's what we need from the team. And it was it was cool to see. This was such a cool third quarter, especially coming off last week, or atrocious third quarter. Well, the first the first two points were actually the longest. I, you know, after that six-and-a-half-minute point, I started timing these points. And, and the first two points, when I was 8-8, eight, eight, it was two minutes and 30 seconds. That's how long that point took. And then the point after that, when we scored to make it 9-8, took three minutes. So the bulk of that bulk of that time was definitely those first two points. But this is this is kind of if I was a person that forgot how the game ended up, I would say the turning point was definitely when it was ten twelve. You know, uh, when it was ten twelve, and they they um, Phoenix pulls the disc, the handler on on Montreal catches disc, and then does a quick quick pass to another handler. He just drops the disc. Blaylen just drop, and I just thought like, okay, mentally we're there. I mean, we're rolling with these points. And now they just dropped the disc again on their on their side of the field on a really easy throw. And I'm like, okay, now we have this game in a bag. And, and as Steve recapped in the beginning, I don't think that was the case. But to me, that was that was just a turning point. I'm like, how do you just drop a disc that easily, you know? Uh, that's, that's funny. I thought that the game turned a different way. Because I felt like until a certain point in this quarter, the Phoenix are kind of running away with it. Like, we're, we're in total control. We're up three breaks. We're never giving them an inch. Uh, so I thought the game turns another way where all of a sudden it's a tight game. Um, I thought it would turn like two points after that, actually. But that's funny that you, you mentioned that. Did you like the play where I think it's Damiano uh, throws it to Hemi in the end zone, but Greg Martin is speeding by and the disc must must go like a, a hair by his nose. Uh, and the announcers think that it's a mistake, but it's not a miscue. Well, it is a miscue because Martin probably isn't supposed to be running there. But Damiano almost takes uh, Greg Martin's head off. On a goal to Hemi. I like that play a lot. We see that a lot in this game, I think. We see Greg Martin and Himalaya just cutting at the same time deep. I don't know if that's strategy or not, but uh, we, we do. I, I did see that a couple of times in the game. And it's because they're both deep cutters, you know. I mean, they both kind of want the disc in the end zone. So I mean, nothing will touch Montreal from this game, who Sikulski and Bonneau together had 18 goals of their, you know, 22 or 20. I mean, that's unbelievable. Sikorsky scored the first five for them, and then Bonneau rips off, like, ten straight. But uh, Hemi and Greg have, you know, eight and five between them. That's pretty good. Those are good numbers. So maybe that is strategy. Put our scorers in the end zone all the time. We'll always score. Well, the first game against Montreal, Greg Martin had six goals. He had the most goals in the game, even though they were blown out. He had – he was actually tremendous in that game. He was skying everyone. <laughs> That first Montreal game we had with them. I would have liked to give a shout-out here to uh, former Radner JV captain Jimmy Clark. He would have had his first AUDL goal, but Hampson called a timeout right as he was catching the goal for the break, and uh, he didn't get credit for it. Greg Martin ended up scoring the upwinder. Jimmy looked good in this game. I can't tell. There's one player that I can't figure out who it is, and I feel bad for them, but Jimmy I knew because he's wearing uh, the concussion protection. My turning point of the game, hearkening back to what Harvish has said, was not when Philly was on a roll. It was when we when we stopped doing our roll. So at 10 to 13, and then it's 11 to 13, they score. And then it's uh, then it's 11 to 14. I think Damiano has a good hook to Greg Martin. And then it's 14-12. They score again. And then Hemi gets stalled out. I'm, like, when's the last time we've seen a stall in any of these games? Right? It's 14 to 12. Hemi gets stalled out. And then Royale breaks. And that was the first time when I was like, I know that this game goes to overtime, but I can't see it. I feel like the Phoenix is going to roll. What, after Hemi got stalled, you thought the Phoenix were going to roll? 
No, before him he got stalled, I thought the Phoenix was just going to roll through. We were going to win the game, like, 22 to 17 or something. And then yeah. him he gets stalled out, and I'm like, oh, I can see how Montreal climbs back into it. Not the him he getting stalled out, but also that they convert on that break. That's why I thought the 10-12 point where they just dropped a disc on a pull was like, oh, right, we're going to roll this game. That's why I thought, I'm like, oh, man, we have this game in hand. That's, that's kind of what my, I thought my turning point was, and I'm, I'm sure that wasn't. I, I have another turning point later in the game, but... At that point, I'm like, okay, we have this game in a bag. Hemi <laughs> held the disc forever, man. That thing was an obvious stall. Right, but do you think that, let's say we convert there, do you think the Phoenix continue to roll and we win this game like 22 to 17? Not or do at you all. think that, no? no. You think no. Montreal was always going to climb back into it? The Phoenix, were, the Phoenix were turning the disc over too much, which were, giving the, which were giving the Royale too much opportunity to get back into the game. And that that came to fruition there when it was uh, like when it was the Phoenix were up sixteen fifteen they had a turnover um, that the, the that could have put them up a break um, they had two turnovers after that that helped Montreal tie the score at sixteen Arcata had a bad turnover that led to a, a the Montreal going up seventeen sixteen another turnover by Mike almost cost them. But then he got that he got a sick layout D. That's where the turning point was for me in the fourth quarter was when Mike got his own turnover back with a sick layout block near the Montreal goal line and helped the Phoenix tie the game back up at 17s. But no, that Montreal, I mean the uh, the meta stall really didn't have very much impact to me. I mean because too much too much happened after that. That Arcada layout D to knock it back into Nari's hands. Have you ever seen anything like that? That was crazy. <laughs> No, that was a sick D. That was a sick D. But, but at, at that point, I mean, I, I think he, I think uh, if, and I think if you talk to Mike, I think he'll be the first one to tell you that he he owed the team. Like he had two really bad turnovers right before that sick diving block, you know. And he got that block, and it seemed to get him right back on track because right after that, Mott had an assist to make it seventeen seventeen, and then. Uh, the Phoenix got a break to go back up, to go back ahead. They they took an 18-17 lead after Arcada took a, threw a huck to Nardelli, and Nardelli hit Meta for the go ahead goal. I think that's that was the big turning point was when Mike uh, took his head out of his rear end and started playing some better ultimate. To be honest with you, yeah, he's jacking some ill advised shots for sure during this game. Yeah, you were you. I think you nailed it on the head. I, I I think he was playing like this is the last game of the season, and I got nothing to lose. At first, he was he, he was throwing what he wanted to throw, but then I think he realized, hey, these guys are really trying, and we have an opportunity here to to get a a, a road win in Montreal, which they don't they're they're not easy to get. And I think Mike started to uh, flip the switch a little bit and play a little better. And uh, I think that that layout block. When it was 17 six, 16 Montreal, I think that was a big deal. Does that count as a hockey assist? Does it yeah. count? <laughs> I'm looking. I'm trying to look at these ulti stats, and right now I see one where Arcada gets Nardelli, and that goes to Meta. Is, is that the play? Was, was does that count as a hockey assist to to Arcada and knocking disc right into Nardelli's hand? Sure. Was he the last? Was he the second to last person to touch it? Yes. That counts. So. Montreal takes a 19-18 lead and before the Phoenix hold the disc to the buzzer. I mean, I I didn't think that they were going to score when it was uh, when they when it was, they were down 19-18 and had the disc. I thought they were running out of time. They got the disc. There was there's only 34 seconds left on the clock when they got the disc to start and they marched it down the field and there was just enough time left on the clock for them to score as Damiano hit Connor Boyle to tie the game. I mean, that was that was a tense point for them. It was a test point for me, Steve. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was so much stress going through my system watching that last 35 seconds. Oh, my God. And then the last person you expect, the last person you expect to be wide open in the end zone, Connor Boyle, is just sitting there catching a, a cross-field flick from Damiano was just, oh, it was, was amazing, you know? Especially because we're not there, so we don't, we don't see everyone in the frame. We just see Damiano with the disc, and then he hucks, he chucks the disc, Across the field, Connor Boyle was wide open. So, yeah, on, on, on the replay, it seemed to go through of like a, a, a hundred people. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, I guess he had a lane to get it there, and he he ripped it, and he found a. It was a 
He found Connor Boyle. It was a great throw. I had to keep reminding myself that we won the game. He's uh, <laughs> I was watching that. I'm like, yeah, right, I'm like right. did we did we go to overtime? <laughs> right, I'm so not sure. You know when overtime started and we were down in overtime, I'm like, damn, did we go to, did we go to a second OT? I'm I'm not even sure if we did that. I mean, look at us. <laughs> Yeah, I felt the same way. I felt like we were never going to win this game. There was no way that we were going to win this uh, ultimate frisbee game. And, yeah. uh, and, and 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 somehow they were. They kept every time Montreal gave them a push, the Phoenix pushed back. And I think that was a sign of their growth of the 2019 season. Was earlier in the year they would have folded. Like the the uh, Harvest, you talked about the game earlier this year where or earlier in 2019 where. Uh, the, the Royale came to AA Garthway Stadium and had their way with the Phoenix, and they beat them 20, what, 21-15. It was bad. And for them to go up to Montreal just a, a few uh, a few weeks later and to put on this type of performance, it was it was a gritty and it was a gutty performance by the Phoenix, to be honest with you. Well, I think, I think one thing that was different about this game is I think when Montreal came down, um, to Phoenix, they, what they did is they came down one day earlier and they rested their players and then they played the next day. Um, that's kind of what the Phoenix did this time. They actually traveled up to Canada one day earlier to rest and then play the next day. They didn't rest. They, that... played a, they played a full game against Ottawa, lost no, by one point, no, and then went to Montreal. No, I'm ta- I'm, I know. I'm, ta- I'm talking about just in general. They Instead of traveling straight to Ottawa to play that game, they went there a day earlier, sleep in the hotel. And that's what I'm saying. They had a, they had a longer weekend, so it was less, uh, less impactful on the players to have Ottawa the next day, um, Montreal, where they can settle in, for, settle in for one day, have a good night's sleep, play Ottawa, even though that was a heartbreak when we lost that game. You know, they still have that rest of the weekend, and that's kind of what Montreal did when they came down to Philadelphia. They came out early. They rested against – they rested one day. They played – the Phoenix, and the next day they played DC and lost, of course. But it was just a different mentality, different approach we had to this, this Canada trip usually, that we don't usually have. Well, it definitely paid some dividends um, as the Phoenix were able to. to uh, well, they they hung with the Outlaws on Saturday, and then on that Sunday in Montreal, they gave the uh, Royale everything they could handle and some, as the Phoenix tied the game uh, on another Sean Mott throw. To uh, to force double overtime, and uh, in sudden death, even even in sudden death, their harvest things weren't looking good for the Phoenix. They had to go upwind to get that game winner. I feel like the whole game, it's not the upwind that hurts these teams; it's the downwind. Like Quinlan tries all these blady flicks that are just out of reach of people on the downwind side. I feel like the reason that we end up winning this game is that. Montreal just can't convert points to downwind, and neither can we. That was the problem. We start off the first overtime. Uh, Montreal's going upwind. They get – do they get a turn, or am I confusing something? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Phil, yeah, yeah. Phil, yeah. Phil, 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 the Montreal turns the disc over. Right. And Austin Lillis turns the disc over for the Phoenix, and Beneau ends up scoring for the Royale to break the record. Right, the downwind in this game seemed way harder for people to convert. That was the end zone where everyone was missing these shots. The upwind, it seemed like, you know, the upwind was the one where, like, Montreal would throw zone and the Phoenix would would have these really simple points running down the field through the zone. I felt like the downwind was the real killer in this game. That's why I liked that we were going upwind. I think that was a strategic mistake. Well, that's what, I mean, hats off to the Phoenix for winning the toss. Um, to start uh, overtime and choosing to go downwind. I'd love to go through. No, they didn't choose to go downwind. They choose to receive. Yeah, oh. the, uh, they go up. No, no, the Phoenix pulled. The start for overtime. Yeah, the, the Phoenix pulled downwind, so that forcing Montreal to go upwind to score. I'm saying that I would love to. I, I mean, I didn't do it this time, but. If we ever watch this game again, I'm going through this game and I'm going to mark down every time that a team converts successfully on the upwind versus the downwind and how much I think it's way harder for the teams to go downwind in this stadium for whatever reason than it is to go upwind. This, I mean, Arcata has like two, Arcata alone 
can't do anything with the downwind end zone, but he's great in the upwind end zone. The downwind end zone is the one where he hammers it out of bounds. He's that huck to Hemi that goes out of bounds. He can't do anything with that end zone. But when he's going upwind, for whatever reason, he can knife through it. He did the greatest going downwind. He leaped out of bounds and blindly scubered behind him. That's true. That play worked, I guess. I'm just saying, like, overall, it seemed like the teams were much less efficient going downwind. I'm just, okay. Well, probably focusing on the throws a little more, making sure they're right amount of spin, and they're probably more accurate. Or going downwind, they're just kind of chucking it. They feel more confident and too confident, even. Arsenal... We, we were so close to not going to overtime, second overtime. Because Arsenault, I mean, Pollard has to body Arsenault there for the for the uh, the last second shot that Montreal has. I don't know if you caught it, but, like, Arsenault's fingers were probably on that disc before Pollard ripped it away from him. It was so close. Yeah. This is the most aggressive I've seen Pollard play. Uh, most aggressive I've seen him go up for discs. Most ag- you, saw him lay, you said we saw him lay out. I mean... This is the most aggressive I've seen him all season. Maybe he had a same mentality where it's last game of the season. What do I have to lose, you know? Yeah. Do you think that all these practice squad players actually coming on this road trip and, like, being together for the whole thing, you think that came together here? Um, I think there's something to be said for that, for sure. I think those guys toil down there in, in obscurity for, for a long time, and when they get their chance to shine, I think they all – root one another on you know like when i uh when i played for rage and i first started playing and uh, i wasn't getting a lot of playing time i would always go on the other sideline from my teammates and i would stand there and cheer for my team and uh you know and uh yell out like you know different different you know up calls and whatnot things you do for on ultimate sidelines anyway um i convinced the other guys on the team that weren't playing very much to come over with me and we were the other sideline posse. And when one of us played, everyone, every one of us that were on the sideline that weren't playing always like rooted for like hard for that guy. You know what I mean? And uh, like, you know, so like it was like one of us were playing, you know, and so we had like, this little subset of the team. So, yeah, I would imagine that the uh, practice squad guys coming together would, would be uh, would definitely have something to do with it for sure. Do you think that the approach of the coaching staff has to be different for those guys? Or are they riding them the same and showing them that, like, the way that I'm talking to you is also the way that I'm talking to Billy Sickles, who's not here, and Ethan Fortin, who's not here, or even, like, Himalaya Meta and Aaron Nardelli, who are here but are Phoenix Stars? Or are you trying to, like, coddle them a little bit? Uh, that depends on the player. Um, I think you got to take each player's case in the in, individually. Um, but No. For the most part, you you don't change your style, you know what I mean. You don't you if you don't you definitely don't want to lower your expectations because somebody else is uh, because someone's not there, you know what I mean. You you want to you want to sit there and uh, maintain your expectation level and hope you want to make them rise to that level, you know what I mean. You want to help to get them to that to to where you want them to be. I mean. Uh, I mean, if you if you're putting Jimmy Clark on the field against the Montreal Royale, well, the Royale aren't they're not going to uh, they're not going to take pity on Jimmy Clark and take it easy on him or anything like that. So that's why Jimmy's got to sit there and and man up and and, uh, and 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 battle a little bit. I think he did that, and I think the Phoenix overall did that in this game. Do you think that the from switching perspectives? Do you think that Montreal came into this game trying to get uh, Bano to break? both the records that he'll break in this game for average goals per game in a season and most goals in a single game in a season? Yes. You think that was their goal? But yeah, have Bono break the record? Yes. Do you I think know. they're... Come you on. don't think so? No. No. Really? Why? Why? What makes you say that? No. What makes you say no? Because Bono's been doing it all season. Why Why is this game any different? I mean, it's just, just going to be him. You know, I don't think they came in this game with targeting Bono only. I mean, come on. They were trying to score every time as much as possible. Harvey. No, no, they were trying to score as much as possible, but if Bono was, was there, they were putting it up. It seemed like they were targeting two people, right? Sikulski has eight goals and Bono has ten goals. That's a, a huge amount of goals in one game for only two players. That's, yeah. It seems like it's all you were looking at. Do you think it, in the first half, uh, Sikulski has five straight. Do you 
go to your team as a Phoenix coach? Do you go to your team and you'd be like, guys, I know that we game plan for Bano, but you also need to play this other player. Do you say anything or it's just like part of the game flow? Uh, no, I, I think you say something to the team. I mean, uh, you, you can't sit there and say, okay, we're taking Bano out of the game. Um, you know what I mean? But we're, we're going to get burned by Sikorsky. Um, uh, but I, I think you definitely got to tell somebody like whoever the second, like, I, I know the Phoenix, I know Eric Nardelli is a great defender, but there's gotta be a, a, a second best defender on the team. And you gotta like, you gotta ask that person and say, Hey, Hey, can you uh, take care of Sikorsky for us? Because he's killing us right now. You know, <laughs> you gotta tell your defense accountable. I mean, you got to tell them something. I mean, if you got on burning you deep, you got you got to say something. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure the Montreal said something about like why is Himalaya always in the end zone open, or why is Greg Barter in the end zone open? You got to cover these guys. I mean, I'm sure they had a game plans to to deal with that as well. I mean, I'm curious, Stephen. Stephen, how how would you if you okay? So you you've been a coach. So you're a coach, and you go to this game, and you have this Spaniard esque or this really good all star player like. Coming to the game, you're like, okay, I know this guy's going to probably score 10, not 10 goals, I mean, like five goals. I have a huge impact on the game. How do you make sure that that guy's kind of quiet and, you know, he's not he's not that much of a factor in that game? I mean, do you go to your team and go like, hey, whatever you do, he doesn't score, but let the, let the whole team beat you, but he can't beat you, you know? Do you ever have that mentality going into, into a game or playing for that? Um. It's it's hard in ultimate because the players are going to figure out a way to get theirs in in ultimate, you know. So it's hard to totally take somebody out of a game. But yeah, I mean, um, there's been times where like you you put a box and one on on people, where you uh, you take a handler out of a out of a zone offense by playing person to person on them in particular. And putting a, a zone defense around everybody else on the field, so you can take essentially take that handler away and make them decide where they want to go on the field, even though they're getting covered by a person. You know, so yeah, there are ways in ultimate where you can take players out of the game. Um, it's just uh, it's very difficult to do. So, kind of building off that, who do you guys think was the player of this game for the Phoenix? I think. For the for if we included both teams, I think but no might be the player of the game overall. But who is the Phoenix player of the game? Who do who do you have, Steve, as the player of the game for the Phoenix? Oh, I'm I'm stealing uh, Harvest's thunder here, and I'm taking uh, Himalaya Meta, man. I mean, uh, I mean he, he scored the only two goals of the second quarter for the Phoenix, I believe. Uh, yeah, and uh, in in the when the windy conditions picked up. And he scored the most goals of the game. And uh, like like Harvest was saying, he's a Montreal killer. And he lived up to his billing in this particular game. That's pretty cool. Harvest, who do you think was the player of the game? You didn't see my thunder. I think it's Mike Arcata. <laughs> like his mentality. I think, I think his mentality comes to this game really gave other players courage to go out there and do what they need to be. I think he probably influenced James Pollard to go out there and uh, be very aggressive, lay out everyone, even everyone just to play a little more, more free, more loose. I mean, he's, he's feast or famine. We did see a lot of turnovers and we did see some things were like, I can't believe he did that. But I see with James Winston. I mean, like, you know, when he's on, he's on, you know, he's going to do some crazy D's, the greatest. He has some key plays in this game. And then when he's, when he's off, I mean, sure. He has some turns, but he makes up for it. As you saw with that, that D he had at third quarter. Was the fourth fourth quarter, and yeah. he played. He played the most minutes and the most points, I think. Well, and and Shaggy would have. Uh, I, I I bet before this com before this question came out of his mouth, I bet yeah, I would have. He would have taken hard cash to, to say that I would have said Mike and you would have said Hemi, uh, but uh, we switched it up on him. How about you uh, there, Shag? What do you think? So I'm going to take the player who actually played the most minutes this game, but the same amount of points as Mike Arcata. I'm going to take Sean Mott. Part of the reason that I never thought this game was in question was that when it was like tits to the grindstone time and there was no other recourse for us, we had right the last minute of the, of the quarter, we have maybe 45 of those 60 seconds 
are Sean Mott holding the disc 20 yards outside of the end zone, calmly waiting to see who he's going to pass it to. He plays 11 D points in this game. That's so many points. I mean, first of all, it's like the fourth most points, D points out of anybody on the team. For somebody who played the most points out of anyone on the team in 32, he has uh, some crazy, he has like seven assists. He has like two goals. I just thought Mott was in control of this whole game. And also every time we needed him, I felt like he was there. It was so comforting to see. I picked Mott. He didn't play the I'm looking at the stats right now. He played 32 points, and Arcata played 32 points. Right. Arcata also played 11 D points. Mott played 11 D points, apparently. I mean, the and Arcata played. <laughs> Ar- no, I'm st- what I'm saying is that Mott played the most points. So did Arcata. They tied for most. And uh, Mott played more minutes. He played 47 as opposed to Mike's 46. That's what I'm saying. The most minutes. Okay, no, I agree. Play- I mean, you can't just give Mott the envy of, like, the best. He's always the best player on the field. Come on, you got to pick someone else. No, <laughs> sometimes the best Mott. player on the field is the best player. Why do I have to pick someone else? If Mott is going to ball out and control the game, then I give him the crown that he is due. You got a problem with that too, Steve? No, you can pick whoever you want, Shag. That's fine. At least you didn't pick Ben Simmons. <laughs> if he was in this game, I might have. We would have won by more points. It would have been great. Ben Simmons can't throw a flick. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, what was the play of the game? Yeah, what was your play of the game? I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go in a different direction, and I say that last second goal to tie the game from Damiano to, to uh, Connor Boyle was the play of the game because it forced overtime and gave the Phoenix a little bit of uh, room to breathe almost. Um, because knowing they had five extra minutes to to maybe pull pull out the game. I'm going to harken all the way back, I think, to like the second quarter, and I'm going to go back to Sean Mott again. Uh, that play that I talked about where Sean Mott gets skied and then somehow hustles his way for a layout D in the end zone, even though there's like one second that elapses in between the two and the, the play that he makes is 20 yards downfield, I thought that was so amazing. What about you, Harvish? What do you have? I really think that Arcata D in the fourth quarter was my play of the game. I really thought that was that was just a really good thing, cool thing to watch. And it's also, I mean, it, it had a tremendous turning point or an effect on the game, as you said earlier. So that, that's my, my best play of the game. If he didn't have two terrible turnovers prior to that, I mean, yeah, then that would have been the play of the game. But it was, it was almost like he had, it, like he was cashing a check. You know what I mean? Like he, he, he wrote it, he wrote a check. By having two bad turnovers, and we cast it on him when he got the layout D. You know what I mean? It was uh, it was almost like he owed the team. So, I don't know, man. I uh, I, I, I it, it's hard to uh, you know, like you're saying, it's hard to always give the best guy the number one best play of the game. That he was the best player of the game type type of accolade. It's hard for me to give Mike accolades for this layout D when if he just wouldn't have turned the disc over it wouldn't have been necessary in the first place it's like a basketball player who shoots two for 20 but he makes the game winning three do you give them a lot of credit for that or are you like well if you shot three for 20 and you missed that one it wouldn't have mattered I don't know I I want to also shout out one of the craziest plays that I've ever seen uh Quentin Roger or I don't know his first name but Roger Roger he fakes a big lefty backhand, and <laughs> Connor Boyle <laughs> dives to block it, and then he spins around and uncorks a righty backhand the length of the field. But that spin puts so much torque on it that he just jacks it out of the stadium. He does a, oh. a spin move on the mark that only works because he's willing to throw it backhand. It was so that was, crazy. That was Don Smith. That was Don Smith. On the Playing mark, you're saying? Yeah. No, no, no. That's a different play that Dylan Smith gets faked out of his shoes. I'm talking about um, this is on a turn uh, way in the second quarter that Connor Boyle, I mean, he doesn't like, he's not on the ground, but he sells out to stop the lefty backhand fake, and then Roger spins around and just uncorks it. Connor Boyle was a hero, but he also got a foot block, too, in this game. I think in the second second quarter, I think, actually. By Quinlan. Was it? What was your so when we get to the the broadcast? It was a big shift going from listening to Steve 
each game, describing the game, telling us what's going on to this, where they went in and out of, of what was happening. But I, I definitely had some broadcast moments that I, I wanted to highlight. One is that, um, Steve, you take a great – I've watched you do it, and it's really a credit to you and all the work that you put into what you do for the Phoenix. But you take a lot of time to go over each name on the list and make sure you're pronouncing it right. And when Montreal or Ottawa come to town, you're really going through it with the coaching staff to make sure that you're not saying Arsenault and Roget. You're saying Roger and you're saying Arsenault. And it made me – hyper aware in this game when they are pronouncing American names with the French pronunciation. So Austin Lillis at, at one point will make this a super ill-advised scuba to nothing and they will go, oh, Lily with the scuba. And I'm like, oh, Lily. It would be Lily in French. That's so interesting because it's Austin Lillis. It's not Lily. Like well, you, know what, you know what that stems from, right? The first time that uh, Ben Yacht came to uh, to AA Garthwaite Stadium, I was doing a color commentary with Bailey Saul, and uh, I thought that Ben Yacht's last name was Jagged. <laughs> and and Bailey corrected me. He goes, he goes, uh, that's Ben Yacht. And I went, okay, Ben Yacht, it is. So ever since then, I go, I'm like, no, 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 no. You're gonna tell me. I want to make sure that Smith is Smith on this on this roster. I'm telling you right now, man. So you, yeah, you, but the uh, the the French names were particularly tough to uh, to to get down. That was that, that was not easy. Yeah, I, I remember you had a funny story about the the Jacob Sandars or Sanders oh, name yeah. that you. Well, that, <laughs> that, that was my to... favorite moment. Even the French guys did it in in the broadcast here. They were like, <laughs> they were doing their French thing, and then they were, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, Sanders. You know what I mean? You know that was my French moment where they go. I was watching this and I just heard Bono and I also heard Ula La for some reason, like after every point or so, this Ula La. I'm like, what? What is going on? <laughs> you prefer the Ooh La La or you prefer the New York mom screaming in the uh, in the ear for the whole uh, New York game? definitely but it wasn't the audience it was the it was the commentators i don't know what they were i guess that's just an exclamation point in french well, I, I guess i don't know i never took that course my guess is that if i spoke french this would be my favorite broadcast team because when the english announcer gets excited he starts speaking in french and he's like so amped up about whatever's happening on the field so my guess is if i understood it i'd be like oh man this is this is fun all right phoenix fans we got a special treat for you we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be joined by phoenix defensive coordinator Nate Vendita. All right, Phoenix fans, welcome back to the Burning Bird Presents the Phoenix Files Game of the Week. In this segment, we are joined by defensive coordinator Nate Vendita. Nate, thanks for joining us, buddy. Sure, thank you very much for having me. Now, Nate, going into this Montreal game, how, how much of a focus was on stopping Quentin Bonneau? Uh That was... He is our top priority pretty much any time we face Montreal. And we knew he needed to get nine goals to break the average point per game record. So um, even despite that, though, he's, he's a guy that you have to shut down or you don't shut the team down at all. Now, you seem to do a good job of doing that, especially in the first quarter. But then but then uh, Sasha uh, Poitsikolsky, Shaggy tried to coach me up on the uh, name a little bit there before the uh, before the podcast. But uh, he he scored the first five goals for the Royale in this game. Was that was that did that start becoming a, a a concern for you? Yeah, it's usually a personnel matchup in terms of who we have on the field and who can guard Bono, and then it's almost a trickle down effect from there. Um, we like to keep Nard on Bono whenever we can, but if he's not on the field, somebody else has to step on guard Bono, and you know it kind of it just trickles down from there. Is and every once in a while, um, they can put enough good cutters on the field, and we have some tired defensive players and. Those are the times when the guys like he step up a lot. Who did you have uh, covering uh, Bono, and who did you have covering Sikulski? Uh So our, our Nard, Nard's our starter on Bono. Um, yeah, he's clearly, in my mind, our best defender and, and our best shutdown defender, and and also knows that when he does have to give something up, knows how to give up uh, the less dangerous option. Um, we also had Paul Owens on him, and and it was one of Paul's first games, maybe his first, um, but one of his first, and. Uh, we said, we really said, you know, 
show us, show us you deserve to be here. Here's the biggest matchup you can take and see what you can do. And uh, I think he only got burned once. He actually played, Paul played really well on him. We know that it was his third game because we watched a game that he played against the Empire where he threw a questionable blade that we (laughs) ran into him for. (laughs) I remember that. He had a very big almost layout D in that game too. You get a lot of Mott and Arcata and even a couple Himalaya meta points for defense Mm -hmm. in this game. Who makes those decisions for those players to switch back and forth? (laughs) That's me. That's mostly me. Uh, We went into this game knowing that, well... We, I originally put a what we call a kill line together for big defensive points. And I think I think you'll see that line probably three or four times during the game. Um, if I remember, it was Allen, Campy, um, Austin, Lillis. And then we had Arcata, Mott, Himmy, and Nard. Those were our other four. And that was our, like, when we need a point and it's like the grind time, that's the guy we sent out, the guys we sent out. And you'll notice we did the very first point of the game. We were going downwind on D, and I knew we needed to get the downwind break right away and those are the seven we throw out and we did the exact same thing in the second half and i think we got a break first goal out in the second half so it was four three you guys just scored an offensive point and then you put i think you put that same kill line back in to mm. make it five three right was that yep i think they played i think they played four times that game and i think they scored three of our breaks in those four chances that's your oh. offensive efficiency then yeah yep yep yeah, getting those two breaks to start the game really uh, propelled the Phoenix off to a fine start on the road there. How much did that mean coming off of that one-point loss to Ottawa the night before that you guys get off to a fast start in the, in Montreal? Yeah, you know, that Ottawa game, was it was interesting. It We didn't leave that game devastated like you would think. I think we were all kind of, this is the last road trip of the season. Let's just give it everything we got. And so normally after those kind of losses, you feel a little down, and it's really hard to get into that back end of the doubleheader. Um the energy was just there. Um, there, were guy, there were a lot of guys who were playing one the first, second, or third game in the ADL, and there was just a ton of positivity and and, a, and a, a carefree attitude. You know, there's nothing for us to lose, so let's just go play as well as we can and enjoy it. How much do you have planned going into the weekend here? And how much? And if you, if it was anything, how much did you feel like you had to adjust after that first game against Ottawa? Or maybe you didn't plan anything, and it was nothing. Um, so we had planned, I believe we brought, tw- and I could be wrong. I believe we brought 20 and only played 20. We didn't, sometimes we bring 22 and two or so flux. I think we actually stayed with our 20 that time. Um, the game plan going in Ottawa, I would say changed. Um, but then we had going into Montreal, we had changed our game plan pretty drastically from the first time we played them in the season. Um, first time we played them in the season, you know, our, our tradition with them is kind of force them back in, take the hammer away from them because that's one of their biggest weapons um, and really see if they, if they want to play the dishy game because they don't like to play the dishy game when we force them back in. The first game of the season that we played, or first time we played them this season, they were um, they dominated us with that back end force. So we switched to kind of a poachy flick force with double teams when we could put them on um and that i think threw them off a little bit so th- in terms of game plan that was a big change not over the weekend but from the very beginning as far as between days there's not much to do saturday night when you're kind of getting ready you're taking the trip you're going to whatever city for the sunday game there's not a lot of changes to make it's more just see who they have rostered see if you have to make any matchup adjustments and then go into the game kind of with an open mind of if something's not working, let's fix it as soon as possible and let's fix it before the other team adjusts so that we can keep them on their toes. Do you prepare? I mean, I had, when I was watching this game, a crazy Montreal throw counter, but how do you prepare for that? Because it's like watching a different game when we watch Montreal play. <laughs> They're just nuts with the disc. Yeah, uh, they. It's, it's almost freeing. Because as a as a defender, you can't you're not relying on that they're going to make the natural throw every time. They will throw anything. Um, at some point in this game, I think they threw a 45, 50 yard, a cross field throw for a one yard goal. Um, they they and that's what makes it fun as a defender. It's just you never know when the disc is coming up, so you have to be tight the whole time. So your mentality gets to stay at a really high level because there's no down moments within any point. Nate, talk about the um, practice players on your squad that you brought on this road trip and how uh, many of those stepped up, especially like uh, guys like uh, we, we talked about Jimmy Clark earlier in this game where it, uh, he almost had his first AEDL goal 
But, uh, uh, biggest uh, worst time out of my life. I can't believe it. that was the worst time out call I've ever had. I felt so bad. <laughs> right, that so would have been his first goal. Yeah, that would have been his first goal. So you called the time out. What were you yeah. thinking? Uh, we were, we had, it was a big break. We needed a break. We were on the far sideline. Um, we, I, the defense had done an okay job the first time, but they turned it over. They got the disc back for a second time on offense. I think we had one throw to jam it up the sideline, maybe a second to jam it up the sideline. It got to like a stall three, and I was like, we can't. I need to put our def- our offense in. I need to clean all of this up because we need to get this break no matter what. And then just as I call it, Jimmy scores. And the first thing that happens after the timeout is that they turn the- our offense turns the disc over. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we got it back. I think Greg ended up scoring in the corner, but it was – Oh, that was one of the most painful moments of the season for me, taking the, taking away a guy's first AUDL goal. Oh, we'll talk about we'll talk about the other practice players on the squad that have stepped up, not only in this game but over the course of last year. Oh man, we are. It seems like every time we go on the field, somebody new surprises us and and shows they can play. I mean, I'm trying to think who was in this game. Obviously, Boyle, Connor Boyle, like. Uh, I don't, again, I don't know if it was their first game, but definitely rookies and practice squad guys. Um, he stepped up huge. He had, he had a couple um, kind of rookie turnovers, but other than that, he played really smooth. He had a couple wonderful hucks in that game. Um, Whitmer, who just spe- un- unbelievable speed. We can, he was a guy who I think got one or two points on Beno when uh, Nard wasn't in. And I mean, he's just speed. He got a huge pressure D late in the game that we really needed. Um, I think maybe very, very close to the end of the fourth quarter. Um, uh, Dylan and Jimmy are both, I mean, Dylan and Jimmy are some of the best handler defenders, um, that we had that year. They're incredibly fast and just, I, there are probably three or four times if you watch through the film from the game against Montreal that, uh, they are so hard on the dump that the stall is like five, six, seven before a throw gets off almost every time. And it's usually not to their guy. Um, we had, we had another guy who played and I'm forgetting his name who played, that was the only game he played the whole season. And he's had a huge layout D in the fourth quarter. Will Holinsky? Yes, Will Holinsky. I was looking yes. it up because I I remembered that play and I couldn't couldn't figure out who it yep. was. Yep. So we had, yeah. Um, and I'm sure you guys could remind me of more, but I mean Campy had a lot of time on the practice squad and he delivers every time he comes out. Allen had a uh, similar time on the practice squad and I mean he had at least one really big D, maybe two D's, and he played great. I mean, it's just on that's that's the thing that the Phoenix showed in that game more than anything else is we're, we're just, we're deeper than every other team. The, the high level of talent matches up well against other teams, but depth wise, we, we could go with anybody. Talk about uh Mike Arcata's big layout block in the fourth quarter there when, <laughs> when it was 17, uh, 17. Now I'm of the mindset that uh, Mike kind of owed the team at that juncture because he <laughs> this over quite a few times. I don't know what you, what, how, how you look at it, but uh, that that layout block certainly seemed to turn the tide of the uh, of the uh, or to turn the momentum of the game around uh, back in the Phoenix's favor. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, he had I I think he had two maybe two bad turnovers that whole game, which it's is not not terrible considering how much he touches the disc and how much he affects it in a positive way. Um, but I think that was right after a wide I think right after a wide open hammer to Mott and the wind just took it pushed it out the back. Yeah. Um, which again like. Maybe even the right throw, maybe the right right decision there, but Mott was certainly wide open, and that's just unfortunate. But Arcada is somebody who, if you get him fired up, and you get him fired up in the right way or for the right reasons, and in this case, I he he 100% knew he owed the team something. He will play at a different level than anybody else, and I saw it multiple times throughout the season. Usually, like once a game, there would just be something that would take him to the next level and and without a doubt every time he made a huge play out of it and that that he, I mean that was one of our I think biggest D's of the year probably just in terms of how awesome it was and and in terms of like the time of the game that it happened in that second quarter that six and a half minute point there were three timeouts what are what are some <laughs> things that you <laughs> did defensively to you know try to get a point in that in that in that timeout or mm. on that possession you know, it's that that point is so I actually was looking through and that point and then the very first point in the second half, they didn't score for another three minutes. So it was like nine and a half minutes of game time between points. Um, but a lot of different things. I mean, anytime that they call timeout and we're going to set up our defense, we're always looking to put them in the most 
in advantageous position possible. So we're going to try to trap them if we can. We're going to try to throw a double team on. We're going to throw something that doesn't look normal. We're never going to go out there and say, here, we're playing straight up man, and this is what it is. And when you throw this, we're going to stay in it. We'll never do that. So there's all sorts of different things. Um, one of the fun things about that point is when you're whatever it is, six and a half minutes till the end of the half, you're not really thinking this could be the last point. So throughout that point, our strategy is changing from, you know, let's back them and push them under. Okay, now they're trying to go downwind and there's less time on the clock. We need to start pushing them out. Then another timeout happens and it's like, okay, let's try to trap them, but there's a minute and a half left. It, we can The only thing we can't let them do is run the clock and get a last shot. And then 30 seconds left, like we have the disc. Okay, now we need to make sure we run out the clock and get the last shot. So the, the coaching changes and, it's, and when there's not timeouts, there were three, but even then you're changing your strategy throughout every point while the players are on the field. And, and it's, that's when the sideline comes in and you're all trying to say like, here's our new plan as we're going forward. And there's so much communication that's going on there. This game had more buzzer beaters than I can ever remember in a game and they all end up mattering. And how do you coach? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do, I think it was really evident that game that like the pressure is not, not a thing. I mean, the goal to boil to end the fourth quarter to tie it up. I mean, I think there were 14 seconds left. We hit Mott, who then, I think Arcata hit Mott, who then hit Dustin, who kind of chilled with the disc for three seconds and then threw a wide open shot. And it's just, there was no panic. There was no let's throw like something floaty and hope it works. There was confidence the whole time. And the same thing happened at the end of the overtime, just slowly working in and then double overtime, slowly working in. Like there's that our team remained calm and collected. And that's a lot of that is from practice. I mean, Luckily, I think both most of those were in the end zone area in the red zone. So we practice. I mean, we practice end zone almost every practice to make sure we we pride ourselves on saying that if we're within 15 yards of the end zone, we better be scoring every time. But as far as the pressure, I mean, we do we do end of we do a, a I would say every practice at the end of practice we do uh, 15, 10 seconds on the clock, 15 seconds on the clock, 30 seconds on the clock. And how are we going to behave in each of these situations? How are they different? Um, right, 30 seconds is a lot of time, and if you play just throw the big guys in the end zone. They're just going to work it up the field and you're in trouble. If there's 10 seconds left, you have to be able to pressure the thrower. There's a lot of different ways that we practice that. Um, it doesn't usually work out as far as, or as good as it did during that game. We're not, we got two buzzer beaters, I think from us in the fourth quarter in double overtime. And also at the end of overtime, uh, Pollard bodies out Arsenal yep. to stop them from scoring. Yep. That was big, right? We, uh, he, I mean, he, he's a guy who you put him in the end zone in those big, in those big moments. And he, you trust him to come down with it. Not like a lot of times those are 50 fifties, but when James is there, like you expect that he's going to get that. I have a question for you that I couldn't figure out when it was going on, but you're on the field three or four minutes. So maybe you'll remember it. Uh, <laughs> you come on the field to coach the defensive line. Pollard's coming on and the ref waves him off and you're on and you're having a conversation with the ref. And then all of a sudden the ref moves you guys up to like the reverse brick to pull, <laughs> but there's no yeah. way to tell because there are no lines on the field because it's a soccer field. And it's not a football field. So it's, it's like, it seems very arbitrary. What was going on there? And then on the broadcast, I see someone got ejected. What happened? Yeah. So it was, I forget, uh, I forget what his number, maybe like number 27. I don't know. He was talking, he was talking crap to a lot of our players throughout the game. And then he said something to the ref earlier on. They gave him maybe two minutes before that. And they gave him a, a warning um, and so I was out there coaching Pollard. Uh, yeah, Paul, I remember Pollard coming off and then, um, <laughs> they, they announced that it was a, uh, that he was going to get ejected. So I knew we were moving up and the referees weren't quite sure what the penalty was. Uh, so we, there was some discussion and I was trying to remind them that we should be getting a short pool, which ended up not mattering anyway. I think we bricked it. Um, but yeah, there was a player yeah. ejected. I didn't even hear what he said the second time, but the re there was, you don't usually see a player ejected that quickly on their own home turf. Was he saying, was he talking trash in French or was he talking trash in English? The first one I heard was in, was in English. The second one, I don't think was to us. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was to the ref. I think there was a foul call that he didn't like. And uh, he was, he went straight to the ref after the point. We were big fans of the ref and the refs in this game. We thought they were very in control. They, I, they, uh, sometimes they're not, but I thought they did a great job. Like there were one or two that I think they could have called fouls on. Um, but for the most part, I thought they, they called a really good game. And, and I actually expect that. I mean, Montreal 
probably is one of the best cities you could go to to play a, an AUDL game. I mean, the refs are good. The other team is fun to play against. And like I said, they throw anything up. The fans just want to see good ultimate and they cheer for anything. Um, it's a really fun environment. You know, there's a there's a difference that I see uh, defensively in a Phoenix from, the, I mean, 2019, 2018. I mean, I know 2018, Trey got the back. He did a lot of band defense. And I know I noticed this this uh, 2019 season, you really came out with a with a really good. I saw way more double teams um, on defense. You know, way more strategies, maybe some floating zones or some junk that you threw out. Can you like tell us more about what strategies you saw specific for this division? Yeah. So the the 2018 season was, I guess, my first year dealing with uh, with leading the defense, and it was really a um, what what are some zone looks what are some poachy looks that we can put on an AUD AUDL field that would make sense because there's so much space it's hard to actually pull that off um, and so we had some looks but we didn't use them a lot um, I'd say they were like once or twice a game we throw it in just to give a different look um, but we did play a lot of man and then 2018 to 2019 over that winter that's when uh, I really sat down and said what are some really logical ways that we can make a zone work and leave certain people open so that we can double team um, and we spent we spent a lot of time in practice um, because it's not just it's not just knowing the defense and where to be. It's knowing how the other team is going to react and then what you have to do to that. So, lots of hours by the by all the defensive guys to learn that. Um, and and I would say I I'm excited for when we get on the field because all all those things that we kind of built last year are now in place and we've I would say maybe not perfected but they are significantly better now than they were last year. And if we can get on the field, those are gonna those are gonna play a big role in against the teams we play i definitely saw like way more strategy this year i mean 2019 and 2018 i mean something something that i just had a quick quick thought about was in that earlier montreal game we saw that we kind of got blown out 25 15 as a mm -hmm. defensive coordinator as you say what, what do you do about that when your offense is just not scoring they're turning over the disc and getting scored on at that point you take over and decide okay i got look at the offense defensively and see like okay if we turn a disc do we have players on offense that can handle these mm -hmm. turnovers and kind of get the disc back. Yeah, so we definitely do. We actually, we practice offensive D and defensive O during practice to make sure that those skills are are still being honed. Um, during the game, it actually, because of the way the points and substitutions work, there's not a lot of, do we have the right guys at the right time? It's more, you know, if O1 gets broken after a two minute point, who's our O2 and are those, are those O2 guys, guys that if they turn it can get it back. Because if, if we get broken once by our, if our O1 gets broken once, that's fine. But we need to make sure that our O1 doesn't have to come on the field the point after the next. So our O2 has to hold. Um, because once you get into that slide of two, three, four breaks in a row, then if you're on the receiving end of those, that's, that's bad. And uh, it'll hurt your subs. It'll give you, it basically puts you into a cage where you can't do any of the, of the pre-gaming stuff that you've done to get ready. So you have to, you have to make sure that O2 line is uh, at least as offensively capable as they can be. And, and also a, a grinding sort of group, a group that can make sure that if, if they turn it, they're getting it back and can still work. Awesome. You'll see, that's why you see guy like Nard is a, is a guy that you see all the time on O2 because he can absolutely play offense. Um, but we know that if there's a turn, we have our best defender on the field. When you played for the Phoenix, did you feel like you were putting this much thought into the defenses? Or now do you feel like it's just a, like a totally different world? I, so I played defense my entire career, which ended up being 13 or 14 years. And um, I never thought about it this much ever. I mean, a lot, a lot early in my career was, you know, you just play hard man and that's what there is. And you might throw, you know, you might throw a three man cup, but I think the, Three three one maybe wasn't even a thing when I started, um, but yeah, as a coach, it's it's so much more thinking, but it's also so much more fun. I actually have have fallen in love with the strategy behind it and being able to see what the opponent's going to do, how the and being able to predict what the opponent's going to do in reaction to what we do. So knowing if we throw you know two offensive points or two zone points in a row that are really loose, that if the third point I'm assuming they're going to react to it. We can throw that same zone look for two throws and then all of a sudden break into a man and completely uh, get rid of whatever offense that they thought they could adjust to. Nate, do you have anything that 
that you want to say about the game? I mean, the big things that I saw were that, I mean, that point was crazy. The last point in the second, uh, second quarter was crazy. <laughs> um, I thought one of the things that we did really well was when it came down to crunch time with a minute to two minutes left, our defense, uh, even if they didn't get the, the break, was causing them one or two turns and was breaking, you know, was taking off two minutes a clock at a time. Um, I thought our defense really played well. And I mean, when you really, when you look at that whole game in a nutshell, you just see like Boyle had a great game. Mott and Arcata were unbelievable during that game. Himmy was, Himmy had like seven goals. I mean, yes, our stars were carrying us, but every, I think almost everybody had a stat in that game. Like everybody was contributing in some way or another. Um, like Helinski, like he said, he got a D in his first game ever. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought that in general, it was just one of those perfect team wins that shows how deep we are and, and shows like how, how calm we are under pressure. And also that Bonneau really is that good. Yeah, if, if he was the focal point of your defensive strategy, how did he end up breaking the record? I know. <laughs> our, we, I, I said, like, and I'm, I'm very aware of what he can do. And I said, we, like, we need to limit him to seven. Like nothing for the record, but we need to limit him to seven. If we do that, we'll be fine. And I think he got 10. <laughs> um, he's... And, and, but what you do, you, you limit him to the certain, like if he's going to beat you under all day and it takes up 20, 20 yards and then he throws a good throw and then cuts again for 20, like that's, that's a spot you want him to be in. Um, he's just too deadly everywhere else on the field, but yeah, we, we game planned and he, he's just one of the, I mean, he's like, he's like Mott, you know, you, you game plan for Mott, but when it comes down to it, he's going to get his, he's going to get his five assists and his five goals and. Sorry. <laughs> All right. I think that's that's it. That's it for me. Anyone have anything they want to bring up? Well, uh, just real quick, Nate. When like, how nervous were you in that last thirty-four seconds to uh, as as a coach when when the Phoenix needed that goal to tie the game of the fourth quarter? Yeah. Um. Pretty nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had. I knew with 34 seconds to start the point that we were going to be able to make, we we're going to be able to play our offense, which is always good. You never want to just have to throw two and huck it. So I knew we were going to be able to play our offense. Um, I liked who we had on the field. We were going downwind, so we didn't have to fight any like a lot of upwind stuff. We knew they were probably going to be uh, backing us because of that upwind or because we were going downwind and had that advantage. So we knew we could get chunk yardage plays. I was pretty confident barring something crazy happening that we were going to get the disc within 20 yards of the end zone. And then we just had to find somebody. And luckily Dustin had Dustin, you can see him like go through progressions. I think he takes like three or four looks and then just sees an Austin wide open or a boil wide open in the corner who acts like he does this every day. The professional. How often do you use a line builder on uh ulti analytics? A lines builder. I don't actually, I take a, I, I use ulti analytics heavily for scouting but for my my own stuff um i i actually built my own system of calling lines uh pulled i'd say pulled pretty heavily from uh charlie hoppus um but yeah you should see my line sheets there <laughs> they have like 14 different colors on them and they all mean something else and each player is highlighted about seven different times in four different colors <laughs> they're intense yeah. and laminated every time just in case it rains Nate, thank you so much. That was yeah. that was so great. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope you guys got some stuff. It's definitely fun. I I mean, the amount of time I spend looking at this stuff. So if you guys ever have questions about things, feel free to ask because I look at it too much and spend way too much time doing it. Uh, we certainly appreciate all that insight. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For Nate Vendita, for Harvish Huck Meta, for Alexander Shaggy Shragus, I'm Steve Leinert. Join us next week when we. Harken back to days long gone by when the Rochester Dragons invade A.A. Garthway Stadium to play the Phoenix. The Phoenix had their first ever home win at A.A. Garthway Stadium. We're going to uh, tweet out the link on at the Burning Bird 1. And on top of that, we're going to have a very special surprise guest. So stay tuned for another episode of the Burning Bird. Thanks for joining us, Phoenix fans, and we'll catch you next week.